So you haven't seen me for a couple of weeks now and after that hiatus I want to return to some reflections on the resurrection and to whet your appetite let's start with a question and here's the question if I had to ask you to reconstruct the story of the resurrection how prominent a role would you give to Mary Magdalene? Let me say that again if I had to ask you to reconstruct the story of the resurrection how prominent a role would you give to Mary Magdalene? Now, the importance of that says something to us, and the way that we see it says something to us. And I want to read two passages to begin with. I'm going to read John 20, the first 18 verses, and then I'm going to flip to Acts because I think there's a significant verse I want to reference there right at the beginning. John 20, first verse starts like this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter went out, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking inside, he saw the linen wrapping lying there and did not go in. Simon Peter came along following and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on the head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, entered in, and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away to their own homes. But Mary, standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept she stooped and looked into the tomb. And there she saw two angels in white sitting at the head, one at the feet, sorry, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same question. Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I have ascended to my Father and to your Father, my God I, and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. To Acts 10, and Acts 10, um, we uh, look beginning in verse 34 with Peter preaching, and he says, I most certainly understand now that God has not shown partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The words which came to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all. 
You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he sent about, went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, and that God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they also put him to death, hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, if you remember the question I asked about Mary Magdalene, there is a clue in verse 40 and 41, which is, I think, part of the pivot of this passage. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now, this is Peter preaching. Remember, he's talking about his own experience, and we'll come back to that in a second. But the point he's making here is that when Jesus was raised and God made him visible, it wasn't to everybody. It was to a group, a chosen group of people. And the reason that it's important that we stress that now is that we're going to come and look at exactly who he chose to reveal himself to first. And uh, with that in mind, reading this, he, he granted that he should become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. And Mary is this witness chosen beforehand by God. A little bit like Mary, Jesus' mother, if we're going back to that kind of uh, imagery. But enough now, let's get back to um, chapter 20 of um, John. The pivotal passage in this chapter, for me, in this passage that we've read, is verse 17 where Jesus says to her, as he's announced um, her name, he said her name, he, he says to her, stop clinging me, stop clinging to me, stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but, I go, to my, but go to my brothers and tell them this. We'll come back to that in a minute, because uh, the story broadens out from there, and in a way I'm running ahead of myself. But this focus on Mary... Um, is, is important because I, I asked this question, if you had to reconstruct the story of the resurrection, what role, how prominent a role would you give to Mary Magdalene? Now, in the history of the church, there's been uh, many times where the resurrection has been preached and uh, there are many striking resurrection stories. Um, but in essence, we would say Jesus has risen, therefore we too will be raised on the last day. And it's, that's, that's how Paul describes it. But one of the most striking features of the resurrection story we often miss, and it's this passage here that involves Mary. 
Now, another step back, just for a moment, and I want to read a quote to you from um, um, Tom Wright in his commentary on John, and he says this, darkness, and, and before I read, let me just say, it's about the linking of the first creation and the new creation, which the resurrection is the hinge point. Darkness on the face of the deep, the formless beginning, the chaos, the void, the beginning, the wind and the word, God's breath, God's speech, summoning things never known before, light and life, the first day, creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh, the flesh has spoken, breathed, brought life and light. New creation has spilled out around him wherever he has gone. He's the man. The sixth day, creation is complete. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Flesh dies. Chaos comes again. Darkness descends on the little weeping group at the cross. Two men in the fading light do what has to be done. Then the long Sabbath, the rest in the cold tomb. And you can see just how he is almost in a way mixing up the original creation story and the coming of Jesus and that whole thing of new creation. It's, it's fascinating and interesting because that's exactly what this moment is all about. And that's this whole drama that's unfolding here in John chapter 20. Now when we go back to the actual reading, it says there right in the beginning, now on the first day of the week, now, this is the moment, at this point, in this particular instant, now, 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 on the first day of the week. And it says, Mary Magdalene, when they begin the announcement of the resurrection, when John wants to begin the whole thrust of what's about to happen, he says, now, Mary Magdalene, on the first day of the week. So who is she? Who is, Mary, who is this Mary Magdalene that we talk about? She doesn't appear in John's Gospel until the um, woman at the foot of the cross with the other Marys, there she is together, and, and then this incident. But what do you think of when I say Mary Magdalene? And I think for so many people, we think of, oh, she was the prostitute, or was she was the one who um, wept and poured anointment all over his feet. That's not essentially true. Mary Magdalene has been, uh, all these people have been conflated into one image. That happened in the third uh, century, and I'm not going to go into how all of, all of that happened. But even uh, later, in the fifth century and beyond, even up until uh, a few years ago, people were having to try and move away and say, this is Mary Magdalene, and these are the other women that were involved. Mary Magdalene is spoken of in, in, in the Gospels as the woman who, from whom seven demons or evil spirits were driven. And as part of a band of disciples who moved around with Jesus constantly, and part of those who resourced with Joanna and others, the, uh, the band of disciples who were part of Jesus' group. Now, that's who Mary was. She was this obviously um, significant woman who had had dramatic experience with Jesus of being set free. 
and then following with the disciples. And she's actually mentioned more times than some of the other disciples who are named as the Twelve. It's interesting. Here's the thing about this passage in John 20. She is the first person to see and to be at the empty tomb. She is the one who sees the angels seated inside the tomb. And that's significant. We'll come to that in a moment. But, and she's the first one, the first person to have an encounter with the risen Lord. The first person that God, as we read in chapter 10 of Acts, the first person chosen for Jesus to be made visible to, Mary Magdalene. Now, in this moment, as we look at this passage in John 20, it says that it was still dark. So you've had the chaos of the um, crucifixion, of that final week in Jerusalem, where Jesus has been brought to Pilate. There's been the trial, the flogging, the crucifixion, all the drama that's ended with him being taken away and put in a tomb. And then this period of, of darkness where there is total inactivity, where nothing can happen. It's the Sabbath. And you can just imagine the turmoil, the, the kind of stuff that's running around their heads as they go through the events that have taken place. The expectations that have been dashed. All the stuff that has happened over the last three years with the disciples. And all the excitement of going out and seeing people healed and delivered, of being fed, of storms being stilled, so much stuff, the teaching that he taught where it was just like nobody else, and then he's gone. He's dead. And this darkness descends, the chaos on chaos is there again. It's like the beginning of everything again. And in that darkness, in the very, very early morning when it's still dark, in into the darkness comes Mary. And as she comes to the grave, she naturally assumes, as she comes to it, it's empty. She assumes that it's been robbed. So there's, there's, there's more drama yet to come. Not only is he dead, but the body's now gone. And so she runs to the disciples. She comes to Peter. She comes to John, the one whom Jesus loved. And she says to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and, I, and we do not know where they have laid him. We're in the dark. We don't know where he is. We can't see him. We're literally in the dark, but we don't know what's going on here. And it says, as you go through here, that Peter went out, and, and the other disciple, John talking about himself, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. And the other disciple, John, ran faster than Peter. There's more running in these three verses than there are in the rest of the Gospels. And it says that John, who was perhaps younger than Peter, gets there first. And he stoops and looks inside. And there are the linen clothes wrapped. Peter comes up behind and the kind of impetuous Peter that he is, he rushes straight in. He enters the tomb and he sees them there. There's no waiting. It's like, bang, in he goes. He's not going to step back for anybody. 
And he, it says in the next verse, in verse 7, that the face cloth which had been on his head was not lying on the linen, with the linen wrappings, but rolled in a place by itself. This is curious, and even more curious in a sense, because there's no body. But there are the linen wrapping. Who's gone to the trouble? Who's taken the trouble to unwrap a body and take it away naked? If you're going to steal a body, surely what you do is you just take the body as it is, and you deal with it as you need to when you get to where you're going. And then on top of that, the face cloth is folded neatly, separately from the, from the other linen wrapping that is lying there. Now, instantly in their heads, and you can almost see John, his mind going and him reflecting, because in chapter 11, just a few chapters earlier than this, we've had the whole incident of Lazarus. Of, of him being brought out and the tomb being empty and him being unwrapped, Jesus getting the disciples to unwrap him and set him free. This is probably in all this drama of the running and the excitement and the not knowing what's going on and the whole uh, uh, heightened sense of anxiety, there is this whole image of Lazarus. And it says about John, that the other disciple who first came to the tomb entered, uh, the, the second time, uh, sorry, verse 8. So the other disciple who'd first come to the tomb, that's John, entered also and saw. And it says, and believed. And John is talking about himself here. And he's saying that, that, that sun, suddenly something is starting to click. There's something going on here, but we can't really compute it. And so they go away to their own homes. Because it says in verse 9, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So there's all these images flashing in their heads. There's this thing going on. There's, there's, there's um, questions that are clearly raised. But they haven't yet been able to make the connection. Then we come to verse 11. But Mary... And there's something about Mary that is, is quite remarkable because not only was she the first one there, she's been a follower, she's gone around following Jesus. She's used her substance, her uh, wealth to support what was happening in, in, in the ministry of Jesus. Not something that is often spoken about. But here's a woman who is clearly gripped by who he is and what he's been saying and what she's seen happen in her own life, her own experience. And she doesn't go away. Peter and John, these men who've been witness to the, to the uh, transfiguration, who've been on the inner circle, unlike Mary who has just been one of those who's followed in their tight little band of uh, disciples, they go off and they go home. And there's something about that verse which we don't need to explore at this stage. But she stays standing outside the tomb, weeping. This has affected her enormously. And it says, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And there were two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet. As she wept, sometimes... We only see what's there through our grief, through our pain, through our suffering. 
Sometimes it's our tenacity not to just go home, not just to rush back to where we're comfortable, where, where the known exists. But sometimes in that moment of chaos, darkness, uncertainty, as we linger, as we, as we express to God our grief, the veil, if you like, is pulled away and we uh, are able to see beyond. So she stands there and there are these two angels sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says simply to them, because, now she's talking to these two uh, angels in white. She's, she, she's having a conversation. She says, well, duh, they've taken his body and I don't know where they've put it. And they say to her, no, they don't. Hold on. Where am I? I've got lost. When she said this, she turned around and there was Jesus. So there's this engagement. Now, just I've run ahead of myself in a sense, but I want to say just briefly here, the imagery we haven't got time to go into, but the imagery of the, the angel, one at the head and one at the foot, goes all the way back to the imagery of the um, cherubim overshadowing either side of the mercy seat in the temple. There's, there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on here that's saying to, to the Jewish people, this is where grace belongs. This is who we are talking about. This is the Jesus who said he would tear down the temple and then raise it up in three days. Here is what's going on, guys. That's, that's really what's happening here. But as she is um, engaging with these um, uh, angels in white who've asked this question of her, she turns around and there's Jesus, but she didn't know who it was. When we have our minds on something else, when we are engaged and grappling with stuff in our grief and through our tears, it's very often hard to see where God is, where Jesus is. And, and Jesus is standing right there and she cannot see who it is. Now, we don't know whether it's because it's dark, whether it's because she's through her tears, whether it's because he is so different. It's, it could be a number of different things. That's not ours at this point to, to try and work out. The point is that there are many times for us when in the drama and the darkness, the grief of our lives, it's hard to see where God is. And he then says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? He asks exactly the same question that the angels have just asked. It's, she, she's got to at that stage think, well, how come both of these people are asking the same thing? But she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell, him where you, tell me where you have laid him that I may take him away. She still doesn't recognize him even with his voice because it says there that they supposed, she supposed him to be the gardener. And it's a lovely, a lovely touch in a sense because um, we, we often fail to re realize that Jesus is present as, and we think he's the gardener. Um, so in the sense that if you go all the way back to Genesis 2, uh, where it says the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had 
There he, there he put a man he had formed. So God the Father is the gardener. He, he creates and plants a garden and there he puts a man into the garden that he had formed. A man himself that he had formed. And Jesus says in, uh, in John 15, my father is the gardener. There's no, there's no ambiguity here. We understand Jesus is saying of, of God, he's the father. But here we have the, the second Adam, Jesus, being planted again in God's garden. And uh, we can go into all that imagery, but it's just a beautiful picture of God saying, Do you, you know, the, 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 the initial creation there's something happening here that echoes that, that is the new creation taking place right in front of your eyes. Here is the gardener. We are together. We are planting a new world. There is something happening here that is just unbelievably fabulous. And Jesus says to her um, in verse 16, Mary. Now in our English translations, it says Mary. It's the, he, he uses the original ancient Hebrew word Miriam. Now when I say Miriam, what do you think of? Instantly you go back to Moses, to the whole crossing the Red Sea, the going through the water, coming out the other side, the death and resurrection on the other side, the new life, the song of Miriam on the far side, the imagery of Moses, and so, and so it goes on. But the point of all this imagery in our heads and with all of this in mind, she says to him, Rabbi, Rabboni, my teacher. She, there, there, there's, this, there's this powerful moment of recognition. And there, I, you can't get inside her head, but there's the sense of all this darkness and chaos and all the stuff that we've spoken of already in the imagery and, and all this stuff going on, Peter and John, all this running, angels, so much happening. And then you get the sense that there's, there, there are connections. It's like electricity going off in her, her very being, in her mind, about exactly what's going on here. Rabbi, teacher, here you are. And down through the ages and all the, uh, like Rembrandt and Titian, the artists, have tried to picture this moment of recognition where he says, don't stop clinging to me. Don't touch me. Don't hold on to me. You, you could use all this language. And in essence, what he's saying is, don't try and relate to me in the way that you used to. Something has happened. There has been an earth-shaking event. There is a whole shift that's taken in the balance, in the equilibrium of the universe. Jesus is risen. The teacher is back. He has been brought out of the grave. Death has been conquered. There is, there is a transition that has been crossed. Something new is in place. And in, in a way, what he's saying to Mary is don't try and go back to what was. This isn't now going to pick up where we left off. This is a whole new beginning. This is a whole new creation. This is something completely and utterly different. And yet the same. Stop clinging to me. 
because I have not yet ascended to my Father. And this is not about ascending to God in the sense that he's going to disappear. The resurrection is in essence saying that it's not Jesus disappearing to heaven to be with God so that he's separate from us. This is reinvesting himself in the whole of his creation in a new and powerful way. Well, there's so much we could say here. But this wonderful statement where the, where, where the climax comes here, where he says to her, But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Up until this point in the gospel, we see Jesus talking to them and calling them disciples, uh, the little group of them, some of them he calls as apostles, but servants, uh, even friends. But at this moment, the thing has shifted and he says, go to my brothers. Go to, the, go to my family, go to those who are my nearest and dearest and say to them, I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Something has happened. There has been this uh, electric sense of newness that has taken place. The whole relationship has shifted. No longer is there a sense of you and me. There's a sense of us. We're all in this. We're all family. We're all part of this cosmic shift that has taken place in this moment. And he's saying to Mary Magdalene, I want you, I want you to go and announce this news. I want you, as she's been known through the ages, as the apostle to the apostles, the first apostle, the first one who comes announcing the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, is a woman. A woman who's very little known. We have very little understanding of who she is or what she was, except of two or three verses we have in the New Testament. But Jesus takes this woman and he says, I want you to go and tell the disciples that I ascend to my father. Go to my brothers and tell them I ascend to my father and your father. The shock of this is huge. It's got nothing to do with her history, uh, her standing, or anything about this. It's simply the fact that she was a woman. And we've said before in many different occasions that women in those particular time, and that's what makes this such an astonishing thing, that women were so nothing at that stage, that they were not allowed to testify in court or anywhere else for that matter. They were regarded as so unreliable that they, they didn't have any standing in terms of giving a testimony of what had happened, of being a witness. You see, the Christians couldn't have invented, invented the story. They would, they would have been laughed, and they were laughed out of court in some senses. They would never, ever, 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 ever have made up or invented something like that. A woman entrusted specifically with such earth-shattering news, it was never going to happen. It wasn't just part of their frame of reference at all. That Jesus was alive and he was going to be enthroned with his Father in heaven, that he was the King 
the Lord of the universe, that he was risen from the dead, that new creation had happened, that there was a new world order in place, all of this entrusted to a woman. Not to Peter, not to John, who were both there at that moment, not to James, not to Matthew or any one of the other disciples who had gone around with Jesus. It was the woman who were at the feet of the cross. It was, the, it was a woman who was at the, temp, at the tomb early in the morning. And Mary becomes the apostle to the apostles, the one who is called and has to go to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to this bunch of disciples who are, who are hidden and, and waiting to know what comes next. She, in essence, is the first evangelist. It was such a striking thing. It was such a, a dramatic and, and difficult concept in the ancient world that Oregon in the third century is still trying to convince people that um, this was real because the pagans thought this was totally ludicrous, apart from the Jews. Something had happened in the renewal of creation that had shifted everything. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of a fundamental new world order. And it was a woman who announced it. Jesus sends a woman. Out of his band of disciples, this woman. And the church has often struggled with this, and, and, and there is a reason that I'm saying this this morning. But um, in the 18th century, I think Wesley grasped this quite dramatically. As Methodism is rising in the 18th century, and there are possibly 100, 150,000 Methodists in the UK, a large and significant portion of the leadership of Methodists was women and young people. We're not going into Wesley's leadership stuff here. I just want to make the point. Wesley seemed to grasp that there was something significant about the way that Jesus spoke about the role of women in, 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 in the future kingdom that was totally and completely different to how it had been in the preceding generations and even centuries and maybe even millennia. This highlighting of Mary uh, is, in, is hugely important for us to grasp. So when I ask the question right at the beginning, um, have you, how, where would you place Mary and, and what kind of importance would you give her if you had to reconstruct the whole series of events, the story of the resurrection? It's because there is, there is so much that's going on, not just in terms of the resurrection, but of reordering the way that we understand and see how life and relationship works as far as God's kingdom is concerned. We must be hesitant of just taking over what's going on around us. And I think that um, it took quite a while for Peter and for the other disciples, the apostles, to, to, to integrate the magnitude of what had happened in the resurrection. In Acts chapter 10, as we, as we say, Peter is... Is, is with a group of people and he's, he's preaching the kingdom and seeing the Holy Spirit fall on those who were Gentiles. He writes, Paul writes later on in Galatians, he says in Galatians 
323, I think it is, that there is now no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is neither male nor female. What Paul came to, uh, Paul came to understand, as well as Peter and the other disciples in a process of time, was that Jesus had cleared away all the traditional ways of relating that were hierarchical. And that he did away with those cultural norms that placed one person or one kind of person above another. And the resurrection brings into place a new creation. And, and, and it's not just a new creation in terms of um, stuff around us. It's, it's about the way that we relate to one another. It's, in, it's the interpersonal side of things that is totally reshaped. And so... When it comes to the end, I want to just say this question again. How prominent a role would you have given Mary Magdalene? And the question comes back then to you and I. How prominent a role would we have or do we have in the story of the resurrection? Because it's an ongoing story. It hasn't just stopped with uh, Peter and John and Mary and the early disciples. The power, the consequence, the meaning, the ongoing thing of resurrection is still part of who we are as a, as a church. That Jesus is really alive again. That he has been revealed to those he has, that God has chosen to make him visible to. Maybe in different kinds of ways. That he really is the Messiah, the Lord, the King of the universe. That the kingdom is amongst us. That there is a new creation in place, a new creation a freshness in terms of God redoing what was going on. And that we all have a calling to be witnesses. All of us. All of us are witness to the resurrection. And in the way we live, the way we are, the way we speak, the things that we do, are all a witness to this new world order, this new creation this resurrected life of Jesus. The world is a different place because of that day. And we are all of us called to be announcing this good news, to help it happen. We find ourselves as part of the process, like Mary. We are not passive. This, is, this isn't just something that happens out there. It happens in and through us. Every single one, young and old, educated and not so educated, male and female, with every color, culture, everything, every difference you could possibly imagine is brought into this resurrection life. And we have the responsibility to be witnesses to that, as Mary was. So here we go. The question is, if you were to rewrite the resurrection story or you were to express the resurrection story, what role or prominence not only would you give to Mary Magdalene, but what role or prominence would you give to yourself?